series tonight, and it's going to be called The Untamed God. It's going to be a study of, of God's attributes and, and God as he really is, and not just God as we give him permission to be. And I've been doing some reading here. There's just a lot of authors uh, in, in the Christian world that are recognizing this concern. Here's what Stephen Altrogi has to say. He says, we have tamed God, domesticated God, shackled God, caged him, made him fit into a mold of our own making. We don't see God as he truly is. We have smeared our already dim mirrors with a veneer of our own ideas. We have made God safe, comfortable, easy and accessible. Now, if you're wondering what that means, look at this line right here. As if he exists to serve us and make us happy. Now, the, the surrounding culture today, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's increasingly secular. It's noisy in, in that world. Uh, but by and large, a lot of the people that you interact with today, they don't have an issue with God existing, with, with believing in God. They say, yeah, I believe in God. I'm a spiritual person as well. But the, the version of God that gets the most press today is, is, is someone who's kind of there to be your personal cheerleader, to come alongside of whatever dreams already reside in you, what you believe about yourself. And, and he's there to, to give you extra motivation to pick you up uh, when you fall down and you skin your knee and life gives you bruises. But, but along the way, you know, he's just a really good friend. And he's, he's there whenever you need him, and he's waiting for you whenever you want to come to him. Right? That, that's the kind of the, the picture of God that even a lot of young people today hold to. And so that's, that's a concern as we, as we sit in this particular culture, in this world that we live in. We, we are being, and I hope you realize this, you are being influenced by those ideas. And they come in in ways that you you're may or may not be aware of. It's, it's, it's in the songs that we listen to. It's in the films that we watch. It captures our imagination. So that's a concern. But, but here would be another concern that I would have for those of you in particular that, like me, you've, you've grown up in the church setting. And so you've always been around the thought of, of who God is, felt like you've always known God. And, and, and you can adopt what, I, what I've called coloring, uh, coloring sheet Christianity, right? Because you, you've grown up in children's ministry and you've, you've colored pictures of the crossing of the Red Sea and you've, you've colored pictures of Jesus and, and the, the crucifixion. And all of that can become very familiar and, and therefore unexciting, and we begin to think about God like he's, he's someone that, that we, we can handle, that we've already figured out. And so there, we lose a sense of, of wonder and amazement at all that he is. There's an author named Drew Dyke, and he, he tells this story about a, a time when he and his wife got away to a resort in Hawaii, but they, they took, around, took along their, their toddler uh, baby with them as well. So they, they weren't doing too much out in, in the waters and the ocean, but the, the resort that they stayed at, it had this huge lagoon there. Uh, but it was a man-made lagoon, and it would pump in just thousands and thousands of, of gallons of water from the ocean. But what they would do is they would carefully sort it out. And so, uh, you know, things like jellyfish and sharks and barracudas and all that, that was removed. Everything was sanitized and safe. But they would let all these fish come in and, and nice little sea turtles. And then you got to swim in the lagoon. 
And he says that, you know, when they, when they first got there, they were just so excited to be able to swim. And you, and you look in, in the water and you see all these fish underneath you. And, and some of the water was clear enough to look down and see all the wildlife that was there. But he says after he did a couple of passes and his wife did that as well, he was surprised by what he began to experience. Boredom. It eventually got old. And he, he turned to his wife and said, you know, we, we, could, we could swim in the ocean over there. there. There weren't any waves or tides or danger or depth or darkness, and therefore it was unexciting. Safety can only hold your interest for so long. So here's my question for you. Is your thoughts about God, your, your concept of God like that man-made lagoon? Here would be some symptoms of having a small view of God. Maybe when we worship, you struggle to find motivation, to have interest. That, that's kind of uneventful for you. You're, you're easily distracted. Almost anything else can enter your mind in what we just did a moment ago. Right? You've you, you got all these other things that are competing for your thoughts in that moment, and, 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 and God has become uninteresting to you. You know, maybe you are prone to anxiety, and little things can put you in freak-out mode, and you, you get easily stressed out, and, and there are moments of panic because somebody did something, and, and you're not really sure, what do they think about me now? What does that mean? If, if, if some uh, project or test is looming over you, that, that, that is a, a week where you're just living from one stressed out moment to the next. Right? That, we'll see in our passage today, that, that comes from having a small view of God. Or are there issues of sin and temptation that have captivated you and, and you return to them again and again and, and sometimes you, you feel like, why do I do this? It just seems so clear. It seems stupid to you in, in a moment of sanity but before you know it, you, you find yourself going to that same person, that same website, that same outlet to try to extract from it some temporary pleasure or high that you already know isn't going to last, but you're doing whatever you can to find something that excites you. We, we go to these things because we are looking for a big God. Here's what Drew Dyke says. He said, people are starving for the awe of God. Most don't know it, of course. They think they're starving for success or money or excitement or acceptance you name it. But here's the problem. Even those fortunate enough to satisfy these cravings find they are still hungry, hungrier even. Why? Because they've left untouched the most ancient and aching need, the one stitched into the fabric of their souls to know and love a transcendent God. I believe that once you strip away all our shallow desires and vain pursuits, it's God we're after. And not just any God. Listen to this. We have enough friends. We need a great and awesome God, a God worth worshiping. And that's what I want to reintroduce us to again tonight, a God who is infinite and without 
limits and who does not fit into our small thoughts about him. So please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah is writing to a people who are coming to realize, or at least he's telling to them ahead of time, so they better clue in on it, that they are about to face exile. Everything that is familiar to them, their home, their businesses, their friendships, all of that is about to get thrown upside down, and they're going to be kicked out of their land, and there are these foreign armies and powers that are staring them down, and he's saying, that, that's coming your way, but, but listen, God isn't going to leave you there. He's not going to abandon you. And so he, he takes a turn in these chapters here. And then uh, chapter 40, verse 1, he starts talking about comfort for my people. Speak tenderly to them. And then he says later uh, that th- there's a, a herald of good news that's coming. And so he wants to proclaim a message of hope to them. But I want us to pay attention to how he does that because what they need in a moment like this isn't just to know that God's going to be with them, that he's going to be faithful to them. They need to know that he is really big and really capable. So let's read together Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Let's pray. Oh God, we might live in a different geography and the the names and key players for us might be different, but Lord, we have the same condition in our hearts. We have the same need to behold and to know these things about you. So Lord, as it was your heart and your passion to to reveal yourself to your people in Isaiah's day, Lord, would you help us? We want to behold our God. We want to see you in all of your glory and all of your significance, Lord, in all of your immensity and see everything else in light of who you are. So help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to talk about God's immeasurable size, his unsearchable knowledge, and his incomparable greatness. So first, God's immeasurable size. Look down at verse 12 again. He asks, who has measured the waters 
in the hollow of his hand. And, and he just begins this series of rhetorical questions. And you guys, I, I've told you this before, right? A rhetorical question, the, the, the person asking it isn't really looking for an answer. They, they, they want to be very clear with you. And, and the implication is no one has done this except one and one alone, and he is utterly unique and stands out. But, but look at this, this picture here that he, he gives. You know, we, I went with uh, my family to the beach uh, the, earlier in August, and I just was stunned again to stare out at the Gulf of Mexico. This, is, this was before Hurricane Harvey would plow on through it. Um, and, and just, you, you look out on the horizon, and all you can see is water. And I told Piper, you know, Mexico is, if you keep swimming in this direction, she's, she's really interested in Mexico for some reason. She's always wanting to learn Spanish words and stuff. I said, do you think that if we swam really hard and kept going, we'd be able to reach it? And she was ready to try it out with me, right? Just uh, empty faith in, in my ability to swim across the, the, the Gulf of Mexico. But, I mean, one of, the, uh, one of the most frightening things to consider is the depth of the ocean, just how much water is on this globe and, and, and the creatures that occupy the darkness all the way down there underneath all of the pressure, the leagues of the sea, just the, the mystery that surrounds that. And, and, and we're, you know, our, our planet is, is called the blue planet for good reason. This is how many gallons of water we have on planet earth that's 326 million trillion gallons of water that occupy this planet and and the, and the picture here is who has held the waters he's talking about all of it in the hollow of his hand i once heard a theologian named bruce ware preach from this passage, and, and, and he said what he did with his kids, he did a morning devotion with them where he read them this verse, and then he went out with his, you know, four or five-year-old daughter and sat her on the beach, and uh, then he went out into the water a little bit, and he said, you know, I, I want you to pay careful attention. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my hands, and I'm going to scoop out as much of the water as I can, and I want you to see how much does the water line go down after I do this. I, I want you to Pay real careful attention with me, all right? You got it? And then he would scoop out some, and she'd say, did you see it? And she would say, uh, no, Daddy. All right, I'm going to do it again, one more time. And he'd scoop it out. Did you see it? It doesn't make any sort of effect. But Isaiah says, God comes down with his hands, and he scoops it up, and everything is left behind dry. This is the immensity of who God is. And then he says he marks off the heavens with a span. You should do this later. Search, uh, just search the phrase scale of the universe. And there's, a, there's an interactive website where you, you can start and, and it'll actually zoom in to like the size of a, a cell in your body. And you just keep scrolling and zooming out to, you know, an earthworm and to the size of a, a human being and the Eiffel Tower. And then you, you see, you know, uh, the planet Earth and you just keep going from our solar system and beyond and just the immensity of the universe. The, there's a little picture here of just the, the size of the Earth in relation to the sun. You, you can fit one million planet Earths inside of the sun. But you guys know that there are certain stars out there 
that you can fit one billion sons comfortably inside of them. Now, if, if you just pick up on this scale right here, and you, you notice the distance between uh, the earth and the sun here, right? This isn't really portrayed to scale. It's just showing you the size of the, of the planets in relation to the sun. But, but you know, th that's just a matter of inches on that screen. Anybody know the name of uh, the nearest star after the sun? Come on, my astronomy peeps. Alpha Centauri. You with me there? All right, sound familiar? Okay. Uh, on this scale, y'all know what I mean if I say on this scale. You, you tracking with me? All right, so Earth is a matter of inches from the sun. If we wanted to represent where Alpha Centauri, the, 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 the next nearest star is, where in this room would we have to put it? What do you think? Just point to something. Take a risk. Right over there. Okay, think the back of the room. Would that work? Right, here's what we'd have to do. We would have to go into the parking lot, and then we'd have to get in our car, and we would have to drive all the way to Baton Rouge. And then we would arrive at our next door neighbor in the universe. And then you just keep going and going from there to the Milky Way galaxy. And, and I'm telling you, go, go to that website and just keep zooming out and you see that becomes a little speck. And then you keep zooming out and, and, and all of our you know, millions of stars in our galaxy, they become a little speck and they're part of a big cluster of galaxies. And then you just start, you know, they, they give up talking about miles and, and, and units of distance. You, you start talking about time like light years in order to be able to describe the size of the universe. Here's another way of, of, of putting it, okay? If you, if you, if you picture uh, the Oreo, um, I'm trying to remember what actually this illustration is, but that actually just flew out of my mind, so I'm going to have to skip that one. There, it's called, I, I wrote in my notes, Oreo cookie scale, and I've got no idea what that means. <laughs> but it had something to do with, anyway, forget about that. Y'all had Oreo cream pie, so that, that's enough for that. But this is what Isaiah is saying here. God says, I've got this right here. You know what a span is? It's between your thumb and your pinky. The distance of one hand, and he holds the entire universe here. And then he says in verse 12, he's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scales, and the hills in a balance. He just picks up the, the Himalayans and the, the Swiss Alps, and he weighs them on scales like he's counting coins. But, but, but lest we think that God's just some really huge version of us, he says in verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And the answer is no one. God measures everything with ease, with his thumb and his pinky, and no one has measured God. He has no limits. He cannot be contained in all of creation. Now, listen, our experience is so different from this. Right? We, we live limited lives. Have y'all ever seen the, the, the teen film, the, the Perks of Being a Wallflower? But the tagline for that was, we are infinite. Uh, 
No, you're not. Uh, from the moment that you are born, the fact that you have to be born shows that you are not infinite. And then you get measured. My kids tend to come out pretty big. Uh, Knox was 10 pounds, 3 ounces, which when I was in high school, I didn't know. Is that a big baby or an unusually freakishly small baby? I didn't pay attention to how much babies weighed then, so that might not mean anything to you. But he was pretty big, but even at that size, relatively tiny. And then, and then all of your life, gets measured, right? Your, your grades are getting measured right now. Your performance is measured. And we enjoy doing that. We enjoy uh, measuring the, the capabilities of, of celebrities and athletes and, and knowing stats, you know, knowing that Drew Brees has thrown 465 uh, uh, passing touchdowns in his career, that LeBron James makes 75% of his free throws. This is information that, that matters to us. Uh, we know, uh, one of you guys told me that uh, Taylor Swift, in her latest music video, uh, that she took a bath in diamonds, and they were worth $10 million, all for the benefit of uh, Taylor Swift's music video. And it was like three seconds long. Now, what I found out, Grace, is actually uh, they lent those to her. She didn't have to buy $10 million worth of, you got clout. You know, Tay-Tay's got the clout, I guess, you know. Uh, we, we, on a s much smaller scale, right, we, 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 uh, uh, we perform our own little celebrity rundown, and we pay attention to how many retweets we have and how many likes we have on our posts, how many page views on our videos. Everything gets run through a measurement. But listen, with God, you cannot do that. There is no way to evaluate him. There's no scale that is large enough. There, there's, there's no unit of measurement that we can use that would make sense. I mean, just think about it. How long would it take you to count to infinity? And you just keep going and going and going. There's, there's no assessment that we can provide for God. Now, now here's where... This is big theology, and we're going to be doing some big theology in this series together. But here's, here's where this helps us. Because we are so easily captivated by how do I measure up? How do I stand in relation to other people and their abilities? And what makes me unique and talented and noticeable? How funny I am, how smart I am, how athletic I am. Yeah, maybe how morally good I am as a person. I'm, I'm, I'm respectable. I'm not like one of those other kids that's always getting in trouble. And we take comfort in those things and how we line up. But the question is, compared to whom? Because if, if we just right here on our little speck called planet Earth and, and we're next to all the other little specks and, and we pride ourselves that we're a couple of inches taller than they are in, in our abilities and in our values or we get all deflated and depressed because we come to realize I, I don't quite line up to where you are. I'm a couple of inches shorter than you are. What, what's the standard of comparison here? It's not the God who has no limits. Before whom, as we'll see in this, this passage, when it comes to significance, we are accounted as less than nothing and emptiness. Now listen, that ought to be the most freeing thing for us to know. It takes away the competition. It just puts us all in our place. 
C.S. Lewis said that humility isn't about thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And sometimes we have this kind of false version of humility. It's, it's self-deprecating. It's like, oh, no, man, I'm really horrible at that. You don't, you don't know. And we like to make jokes about how bad we are at something. And, and really, it's just another way of inserting ourselves as the topic of conversation. And we've just, once again, succumbed to the standard of comparison existing right here. What, what has to happen is we have to think not just less of ourselves, we have to think of ourselves less, which means something bigger and something more amazing has to capture our attention. And that's what Isaiah wants us to do here to help us see that everything gets resized when it's placed next to God. And he says in verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. I don't know if you guys have ever watched little children try to carry a cup of water, but uh, you know either they're they're like knocks and just totally reckless, or or they're just ultra careful and 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 they they've got it like up to their nose and they're monitoring the water line and they're taking these little inching forward steps to make sure nothing of it spills. Now imagine you're, you're carrying a bucket of water yourself and then you know, you're, you're passing by and you've got that there and then I come up to you and say, what are you doing, man? What's with this? You, you're making a mess of all this. It's all wasted. And you're looking at me all confused because you don't get, what are you talking about? I'm just carrying this bucket of water. I say, do you see the drops that you have let come out of this bucket? I can't believe you just let it all fall out like that. It's just ridiculous like that because if a, a drop in a bucket has no significance to us. We wouldn't even notice that it's gone or that it's missing. And, and who does Isaiah describe as a drop in the bucket? All the nations. All of the people and the powers and the world political scene, all of the threats, right? In, in their day, it would have been Assyria, and the armies that they were able to wield and how they're showing up on Israel's doorstep and they're bringing their taunts and they're, they're saying, you, you better just uh, give up now because we've got you. And there's scary stuff happening in the world today. I don't know if y'all pay attention to the stuff going on uh, with, with North Korea. That, that's a bit of a game changer because uh, it's, it's one thing for a, a, a rogue nation to have nuclear power like that, but, but really when... Everything is at the whim of one insane man who can do whatever he wants, right? It just, that, that is threatening. That is legitimately concerning. But, but God wants us to take a moment and, 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 and collect together all the things. Maybe it's not North Korea. That tends to be not what freaks us out right now. But whatever for you is, is larger than life, and tends to be a motivating factor, tends to either lead you towards something or cause you to retreat away from certain settings because it, it, it's, it's controlling, it's threatening for you, what you fret about, what seems too big for you to handle. And God wants you to see, look, in comparison to me, it is a drop in the bucket. 
It's dust on the scales. Right, again, just that, that picture, if you're somebody who pays attention to your weight, I don't know if you, if you do this, if you kind of go to the scale first and you just make sure, make sure there's no dust on that scale. I don't want that affecting my number there. It doesn't contribute anything. And that's what he's saying about these powers. Years ago, a guy named Ed Welch wrote a book titled, When People Are Big and God is Small. And he talked about things like peer pressure. Right? Peer pressure is something that we experience because people are outsized in their influence in our life. And how they might react or what they might think or whether they're going to approve or disapprove. And so I better just keep quiet. I better not speak up about that. And I just give to them the permission to determine what I'm going to do and whether or not it has anything to do with faithfulness to God. Because I want them to like me. I want them to be impressed with me. Get controlled by a sense of neediness for love and approval. Maybe you struggle with being shy and self-conscious in whatever setting you go into. You're just always managing this internal noise. What if I, what if I speak up and say something and it just sounds totally stupid? Or I'm not going to answer the question. I'm not going to take that risk. I'm not going to try to say something funny because whenever I do that, it just falls flat and people look at me like I'm the joke, right? And you just let that take over your life because people and, and, and what you think their thoughts and their reactions might be have become really big. Maybe you have a hard time telling people no. Right? You, you can take this with you for the rest of your life. You, you could be one of the parents in here and, and, and struggle with this and be a, a people pleaser because you're always trying to gauge your answer to somebody's question based upon what, what's their reaction going to be. Are they, are they going to think I'm lazy if I say no? Are they going to think I'm just a jerk? And that dictates for you, you know, apart from any sense of what has God called me to do in this moment, people have become outsized for us. And, and here's why this is the case, is what Ed Welch says. All experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big they have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. Since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious and not other people. Let me tell you, if, if you struggle with this, Please sit down again with Isaiah 40. Open it up and read these words and plead with God, help me to see. God, you, you have retreated into the background. I have allowed really small things to eclipse you. God, take over my view once again. Isaiah just keeps pressing this in on this. We'll hit these other two more quickly. God's Unsearchable knowledge. Verse 14, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Again, the implied answer is no one. No one has 
taught God. Nobody has helped him to understand. Nobody has instructed him. And, and, you know, we know this in some way that God is omniscient, that God knows everything. Can can I take this a little bit deeper with you? You Let me do this just for one moment. God knows everything by a single act of knowing. Here's what I mean by this. God doesn't have to work out the math equations. Have you ever gotten like an annoying response from your math teacher because they, you, you got the right answer, but you didn't what? Show your work, right? They, they want to see it, not just why did you have that answer, but how did you arrive at that answer? Listen, God never has to show his work. He never has to arrive at the answer. He's already there. It's always been there. It's always been in his mind. He, he doesn't have to develop his thoughts. He doesn't make a first draft and edit it and revisit it and say, oh, I don't know about that. Let's scrap that and let's redo this. It has always, forever, and for all eternity been his knowledge and everything he knows is true and it is inexhaustible. He doesn't need time to think or process. He's not like some supercomputer, you know, just punching out the numbers as fast as he can. He just knows everything. He knows the exact position of every cell and molecule in your body. He knows the coordinates of some random star two billion light years away that you and I may never ever discover or have any idea that it exists. And at every moment, he knows its position and he's holding it in place. He knows the square root of negative one. Maybe you didn't know that's a thing. It's called an imaginary number. He knows it. He knows it true and true. Uh, he knows what the fox says, you know, in case you were curious about that. He knows. I don't know if we will ever have that kind of knowledge, but he always knows the right thing to do in every situation. He's never at a point of indecision. He never needs to ask anyone anything or gather any new information. There's no one he needs to consult in order to get a second opinion. Listen, this is what Isaiah says here. God does not have any advisors. God does not want any advisors. Now listen, on the human level, if there was somebody in a position of authority and they said, I don't want any advisors, thank you very much, we would call them a fool. Or we would introduce them to a Twitter account, you know, and they they would uh, have at it. Uh, God does not want any advisors and he doesn't need anyone to help him out. Here's, here's my question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that at the level of a conviction inside of you? How, how do you treat what God has to say? And not just what God has to say about the things that it's easy for everybody to accept. No, nobody has a problem with when, when God says, I love you. I disagree. You know, I've got an issue with that. No, nobody objects to God's opinion on that matter. You may or may not have come across the group of theologians in the Christian world uh, just came out with something called the Nashville Statement. It was just an attempt to have some clarity on, on what for 2,000 years 
as Christianity held to when it comes to things like marriage and gender and sexuality and just wanting to, to be clear on that this is, this is what we have always held to because this is what God has communicated uh, to us. And we're, and we're gonna stay with God's authority on this. And, and listen, it's just amazing. It's, it's unsurprising and yet still for me shocking the kind of uh, violent reaction that there is in our culture to something like this. It's decried as hateful, yet you have the mayor of Nashville commenting about it. You have people saying, you know, you had certain pastors and, and people sign off on that. Who are these guys? Let's track them down. Let's find out what organizations they represent. What churches are they a part of? Let's show up uh, on, at their church on Sunday. They, they, they want to pose a protest and create all kinds of problems just because they said, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, we believe God's opinion on this. And listen, knowing that somewhere in your head in theory is very different from when you're having to face the same taunts and the same accusations. Are you going to say with the Apostle Paul on that day, let God be true and every man a liar? It's like just a number of years ago, you, you didn't know how to tie your shoes. Why, why should I trust what you have to say about this? God has spoken to us. And then he says in verse 28, his understanding is unsearchable. You could read this book thousands and thousands of times. We will go on for all eternity and we will never come to the end of knowing what can be known about God. And there's, there's a phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. And if, you know, maybe there, there's, there's someone that you've been friends with for a long time and then they've gotten really good at something and maybe they've become a little bit famous and that's starting to go to their head some and you push back on them. You're like, nah, man, who, I, I've known you. I've known you for forever. And you don't like the fact that maybe they're becoming somebody that people are talking about because you feel like, hey, I, I, I'd know you. And, and listen, over time, and again, this is dangerous. This is how we make God into something small and safe and sanitized as, as we think, he's familiar. Yeah, I know God. I've kind of I've got that down. You, you will never come to the end of who he is. 10 billion years and beyond, there will always be more to know and it will never get old. It will never get boring. He is forever deep and wonderful and amazing. And, and the reality is, we, we, can, we can know God truly, but we will never know him fully. And yet he knows us completely. He knows us through and through. There's no hiding to him. You can retreat away into the secret places of your heart and he is right there. And he's aware. And he sees he sees through the fronts that we put up. He sees all of our inner motives and thoughts. And the amazing thing is, he loves us. Jim Wilkin says, he knows me fully. Every thought and every intention, every perception and every judgment, every response to the world around me, no personality test required. 
He understands my biggest strengths and my besetting sins. Even the temptations I face are so known to him that he calls them common to man. Apprehending with complete accuracy the best and the worst of me, he is neither impressed nor horrified. He accepts me as I am because of Christ. Nothing is hidden before the one who formed my inmost being. And because I am fully known, I am fully free to love the God I know only in part. Though I do not know him fully, what little I do know is cause for the deepest love the human heart can produce. And out of this love, I can learn to trust the expertise of God. Trust him. He knows everything and he knows you and he loves you amazingly right finally god's incomparable greatness and says in verse 16 lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering he's saying you know take all the wood all the cypress from lebanon and stack it together and 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 use it and burn it up and take all of the animals that you can find in the nation and offering them offer them to, to god and that isn't even enough to begin to ascribe to him the worth he's due and then verse 17 all the nations or is nothing before him they are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness right just when you think it can't get any worse you get demoted from being nothing to less than nothing i don't even know what that means but apparently you know it's just absolute zero in comparison to god everything else becomes totally insignificant and small when it comes to his greatness and so in verse 18 he says to whom then Will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? When you put anything next to infinity, there's no comparison. I think of it like this. How much more is infinity than 100 trillion? Do, do the math really quick. It's infinitely more, right? It, it, it's, no matter what, you still have more infinity left over. Cut it in half and take away that. And then what do you have left? Infinity. It just never ends. And, and, and this, is the, this is the problem with idolatry that Isaiah sees. When you go to some tiny, puny, created thing and you turn to it and you say, you now are all my joy and you are all of my hope and you are all of my satisfaction. It's like you're staring right into a little flashlight while you're looking up at the sun, thinking that this is what's providing light for you. This is why only God deserves to be worshipped, is because only God can bear the weight of being all of our satisfaction, because only with God is there more. Every other thing has an expiration date. You bump up against its limits really fast. Quicker than you even assumed. Whatever person, whatever experience, whatever achievement, whatever thing that we are prone to look to and, and, and seek from it, some sense of fulfillment, some sense of security, some sense of, okay, life is good, because I've got this now, 
I've got acceptance here. It, it will run and drain out so fast. And, and we're going to talk about this next time, about God being self-sufficient. And, it, and this influences how we view worshiping God because one of the reasons why God insists that we worship him and him alone is he knows only he is an unending supply. Nothing else can bear the weight of infinity. We need a big God to be the object of our affection and our hope. Jordan, if you come back up, man. I'm sorry, Ben, if you come back up to lead us. Jordan, if you want to join him too, you know, that'd be fine. Here's what I want to close with this. Do you trust God's wisdom for your life? And that wisdom comes with boundaries. Only God doesn't have any limitations. God created Adam and Eve and he put them in a garden and he, and he put boundaries in place. And he said, all right, eat of all this fruit and not of this tree. He drew a line. He said, there's a limit. You're going to bump up against a limitation of what I know is good for you. And what was the offer that was, that was given to them? It doesn't have to be this way. You could be like God. You can call the shots. You don't have to have constraints. You can be infinite. And what a lie that is. Because the moment they ate of that fruit, they realized how quickly it was gone and how limited they were. But listen, that, that, that is, that's the lie that gets inside of us that again and again we need, we need to, to struggle. I'm not gonna believe that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust God's ways and his wisdom. I, I'm gonna accept limitation in my life. I'm, I'm gonna accept good boundaries that God has put in place, that my parents and, and, and the authority that I'm under have put in place. I'm not gonna try to resist that and think that there, there's something that's gonna be satisfying for me on the other side. I'm not gonna believe the trick again. But to do that, you have to see God as he really is. The God of infinity. The God who is immeasurably big and stares down all the things that come to us with their taunts and their threats and that tempt us to look away when we behold him again and receive the comfort of knowing him. Let's stand together. Just wanted us to close by worshiping the Lord together.